This is the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, for Thursday, May 27th, 2021. This week's Intego Mac Podcast security headlines include new OS updates bring new security fixes. Apple's new commercial perfectly explains app tracking in about 30 seconds. A developer was able to scam iOS users for App Store ratings using a most unusual method. And we'll take a first look at Apple's latest M1 machines. Now, here are the hosts of the Intego Mac Podcast, veteran Mac journalist Kirk McElhern and Intego's chief security analyst, Josh Long. Good morning, Josh. How are you today? I'm doing well. How are you, Kirk? I'm doing pretty good. We'll talk about some new stuff that I've got in the second half of the show. But first, we got updates again, don't we? Didn't we just have updates two weeks ago? Why are there so many operating system updates? I know one reason is that we had a bunch of um, security issues that were addressed, of course. Interestingly, in macOS Big Sur 11.4, there was a fix for a vulnerability that had been used by the XCS set malware, uh, which allowed attackers using malware to take screenshots of, of your machine. So basically, the way that this works is that you have a lot of legitimate apps already on your system that have the ability to do things like take screenshots, to record the screen. Of course, you know, recording the screen is something that you might do because, for example, if you're on a Zoom call, you might want to share your screen with somebody. And so what this vulnerability does is it allows some malware that's on your machine to piggyback on that capability of some trusted app, some app that you've trusted to do things like that. Interestingly, in macOS, screen recording, that screen recording permission is not just used for apps that record your screen. I have an app called Bartender that organizes menu extras in the menu bar. It needs that permission to be able to do things to the menu bar. An app like Witch, which is developed by many tricks, a friend of mine, it allows you to switch windows and it has to get screen recording permission just to be able to read the titles of the windows. So you may be giving screen recording permission to apps that aren't recording the screen. You may not understand why. It may seem a bit suspicious. Generally, these apps have dialogues explaining what they're doing. But any of these apps would be exploitable using this same vulnerability. As long as you've got one app that's allowed to record the screen, if that can be exploited, then someone can either record your screen or take screenshots. Yeah, and so an interesting point here is that although you should be skeptical anytime that you see an app that's asking for permission, you should really think it through carefully about whether or not to actually authorize that app to have that permission. But now there's an extra layer to it, because even if you trust that app, now you need to think, well, what if I got malware on my system? Could it exploit that that functionality that I'm approving for this app to have? If it's a popular enough app, then it's possible that some malware might try to do that. Like Zoom, of course, is a very popular app. And if you've got some app that's not extremely popular, it's probably less likely that malware is going to try to piggyback on that particular app's functionality. True. But it's a good point about all these new permissions that we're having to approve to let apps access your downloads folder or things like that. And we're going to get to permissions fatigue pretty soon, aren't we? Yeah, well, I've already feared that we're, we're getting close to that for you know several generations of macOS now because we've seen more and more dialog boxes asking for permission in the last few releases of macOS. 
And the more of these types of permissions that Apple implements that developers now are required to ask for that level of permission, the more you're going to see dialog boxes on a regular basis. And the default thing that a lot of people do is they just go, yeah, sure, whatever. And they click the default option, which is usually to grant that permission, because otherwise your app is going to break. It's not going to do the thing that you want it to do. And developers get a lot of support emails because the app's not working because the person ignored the permissions request. Yeah, absolutely. This is true. You want to make Mac secure. And so they're trying to do things to move in that direction, to make them more secure. But it also requires, in this case, that you are paying attention and not just clicking on every default. Okay, Apple's got a new privacy ad, privacy on the iPhone, and this is one of the the cleverest ads that Apple's had in a long time. It starts out with someone who goes to get a cup of coffee, Felix, and someone says, here's your coffee, and then he goes out to get in a I guess it's an Uber. And then the coffee person gets in with him and says, yeah, his name's Felix. And this is his date of birth. And then as he's going around, people are following him. And more and more people are following him, tracking where he goes, what he does, what he buys in the supermarket. It's just incredibly clever. In one minute, this is like the perfect explanation for what app tracking actually does. It's clever. This is certainly, I think, a good ad for for Apple because it sort of summarizes this cross-app tracking in a way that kind of makes sense for for people. Um, At the same time, they're showing a feature in the ad where an app is asking for this ability to track you and the user chooses not to allow it at the very end of the ad. And that differs from what the default is. The default is actually that uh, you won't have apps asking to track you. It will just automatically deny by default unless you enable the prompts. It gets the point across that Apple is doing things to try to help protect you from this cross-app tracking. I think Apple is reacting to the, what would be the word that starts with a P, propaganda that Facebook and now Twitter have been putting out saying, well, it'd be really good if you'd let us track you because then you'd get better ads. And then, well, Facebook can stay free. So (laughs) I think Apple is, it's like a counterattack to that salvo from these other companies who are trying to convince people to allow themselves to be tracked. Yeah. Make sure if you haven't listened to episode 185 to go back and listen to that, because we dismantle that whole argument about whether or not apps will remain free. That's definitely something that I feel was very disingenuous on Facebook's part to say something like that. Okay. Meanwhile, Forbes has an article explaining that Facebook tracks your phone location. This is how to stop it. I'm a little bit skeptical about this article because basically the person's saying that when he uploads a photo to Facebook, it contains location information. And, well, I think there's two things going on. First, there's a setting you can enable to not include any location data in photos that you share. Second, if the guy doesn't want to be tracked, let him get rid of the Facebook app and use Facebook in a browser. Uh, yeah, well, (laughs) that's a good point. If you don't want to be tracked, you probably should not be using Facebook at all. Um, just a suggestion. Anyway, there, there are things that you can do. Of course, if you're uploading pictures to Facebook, there is functionality built into iOS, at least to allow you to not share the location of that photo. So that's something that I would suggest that if you're if you're going to upload pictures to Facebook and you don't want Facebook to know the exact location of that photo, 
just um, make sure that you're using that functionality in iOS. Yes. And to find out how to do that, I'll link in the show notes to an article I wrote a few months ago, how to remove GPS location data from photos on iPhone or Mac. And this is actually good to know because if you share photos from your Mac to other people, even if it's not through Facebook, it may have the location data and you may not want it. Okay, we've got a vulnerability that was announced, and it's got a custom domain, and it's got a logo, and it's got a theme song, and well, it's really not that serious, is it, Josh? So this is called Miracles, with the I in Miracles being a one, so that it says m one Rickles. So it's either m one Rackles or Mwonericles, and yeah, I know, it's visual. Let's just call it Miracles. So the Miracles flaw is... This developer says, a an actual problem in the hardware of the M1 chip. This is so dangerous because it exists in the hardware and you can't fix this with software. Except that it's really not that big of a deal. Um, so as as he describes it, he says, and this, this sounds really bad, right? This is the exact description, the executive summary on this Miracles website. He says, it is a flaw in the design of the Apple Silicon M1 chip that allows any two applications running under an OS to covertly exchange data between them without using memory, sockets, files, or any other normal operating system features. This works between processes running as different users and under different privilege levels, creating a covert channel for surreptitious data exchange. The vulnerability is baked into every Apple Silicon chip and cannot be fixed without a new Silicon revision. So that sounds horrifying, right? (laughs) It's not that big of a deal. And the developer actually kind of knows this, which is so so the the whole thing with like creating a website and a logo and a demo video, which includes a ridiculously long music video right in the middle of it. Um, he, he was basically poking fun at how, you know, vulnerabilities get publicized these days more than he was trying to actually publicize his his bug. But of course, he got a lot of publicity for this as well. Hey, Josh. I think we should report a vulnerability that if you give me your Mac and your password, then I can access your files. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a serious vulnerability. We should get our own CVE number. We can come up with a logo and a theme song. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, It's going to be great. Okay. So CVE 1337? Yeah. Oh, I like that. Very leet. Um, So here's the thing. So this technically is a vulnerability, but... Even the developer says you shouldn't really be all that worried about it because he says that any malicious apps that might take advantage of this vulnerability would be much more likely to share information via other channels anyway. And so he he says, yes, it's a security flaw, but it's not really very likely to pose a real threat to Apple customers. So if you do hear about this miracles bug and, and how scary and horrible it is, um, just Keep that in mind. It's not It's not as bad as it sounds. Okay, before the break, quickly, there's an App Store scam app that requires that you give it a good review in order to use the app at all. And I'm not even sure what the app does. It claims to, I'm not going to even give its name. We'll link to the Mac Rumors article. It claims to uh, let you stream video to a TV set. But the only way you can use it is by giving it a four or five star rating. You can't do anything with the app. It comes up with a rating dialogue and you can't cancel that dialogue. And if you don't give it four or five stars, you can't even use it. 
We looked just before the podcast, and it's no longer available in the App Store. And the problem is that it got through review in the first place. Yeah, and I'm wondering how exactly they got it past the Apple reviewers. Because, you know, when you submit something to the App Store, there's more than just an automated process. That is part of it. But there's also a human review element when you're submitting an app uh, to the App Store. Well, they're supposed to be. Yeah, yeah, they're, they're supposed to be. I don't know how exactly this got past a reviewer. Maybe they were just being really lazy and they said, oh, yep, the app launches and... And I got a dialogue box asking me to rate it. Um, now, that should have actually been a red flag right there. Because as soon as you open an app, it should not immediately prompt you to rate the app before you can use any functionality of the app. That's ridiculous. That doesn't even make any sense because you can't know whether you like the app or not if you haven't had a chance to use the app yet. And so in Apple's developer guidelines, they actually tell you not to do that. So the way this app works is that you launch it and you immediately get this dialog box that says, are you enjoying this app? And then they give you the opportunity to rate it from one to five stars with a cancel and a submit button. You've probably seen this dialog box before. So in this dialog box, you were not able to choose one star or two stars or hit the cancel button. The only thing that you could do is you could tap three, four or five stars and submit. That was it. So if you wanted to use this app, even to try it out, you had to rate it. Clearly, this violates Apple's guidelines, and they got kicked out of the App Store. So that's good. I wonder what the long game is. The person must have realized that Apple would ban the app quickly. So now they've probably got their account banned as well. What would be the point of this? Who knows? It is pretty clever, though. One way or another, um, I, I, I mean, no, I mean, it's stupid. It's incredibly dumb the way that they did this <laughs> thing, right? Because, I mean, obviously people are going to, like, quit out of the app and then go leave a negative review for it. Right. Because you don't have to leave a review only through this app dialogue box. Yeah. So, of course, there were a ton of people who went and gave it a one star review and said this stupid app won't even let me use it without rating it first. I, I think it is kind of interesting, though, if if they did actually use the official Apple dialogue box, then what they apparently did was some sort of a, a clear filter that they stuck over the top of this dialogue box somehow that prevented you from actually tapping on the one or two stars or the cancel button. If that's what they did, that's pretty clever. I tend to think that they probably are just simulating this dialogue box somehow, but yeah. either way, um, they're not in the iOS app store anymore. Okay, let's take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about some new hardware. Protecting your online security and privacy has never been more important than it is today. Intego has been proudly protecting Mac users since 1997, and our latest Mac protection suite includes the tools you need to stay protected in 2021. Intego's Mac Premium Bundle X9 includes Virus Barrier, the world's best Mac anti-malware protection, Net Barrier for powerful inbound and outbound firewall security, Personal Backup will keep your important files safe from ransomware, and much more to help protect, secure, and organize your Mac. Best of all, it's compatible with macOS Big Sur and the latest Apple Silicon Macs. Download the free trial of Mac Premium Bundle X9 from Intego.com today. When you're ready to buy, Intego Mac Podcast listeners can get a special discount by using the link in this episode's show notes at podcast.intego.com. That's podcast.intego.com. 
and click on this episode to find the special discount link exclusively for Intego Mac Podcast listeners. Intego, world-class protection and utility software for Mac users, made by the Mac security experts. So, Josh, do you notice anything different about me today? Um, you look a little bit sharper on Skype. And why would that be? Well, I'm, I'm guessing this is because you have one of those fancy new iMacs with a 1080p front-facing camera. Fancy new iMacs with the type of front-facing camera that's been around for, what, a decade, if not more. <laughs> and then finally, Apple put it into the iMac, and yet they still don't have it in the laptops, the MacBook Pro or the MacBook Air. Yes, I got a new iMac. It's blue. And it's really cool. I mean, it's probably the coolest iMac I've ever had. But then again, every time they change, you could say the same thing. You know, this is the first time they've changed the the form factor, the look of the iMac since 2007. That's an awful long time for a computer of this style to not change. Now, it changed from thick and flat to thin-edged and rounded back, but the basic structure with the stand and the black bezels and the black chin and the silver back, it's been like that for, what, 13 years now, 14 years almost. Yeah, that's true. This was a pretty pretty big design change, I think, for, for IMAX. It's still uh, overall kind of the same design in the sense that, you know, it, it, st- it still looks like an iMac. You know, uh, you, you've got the, the flat screen and, the, and the, the stand and all that kind of stuff. So I think anybody walking into a room and never having seen one of these or seen the announcement of them would I easily identify that as an iMac. You know, I mentioned this to a friend a couple of days ago. I was chatting on messages and I said, well, they don't need the logo on the front because there's no logo on the chin anymore, right? They don't need the logo on the front because everyone recognizes an iMac. He very quickly pasted a photo of an HP computer that looks pretty much like an iMac. So I, I don't think Apple is unique in that way anymore. Maybe that's why they made it in color. Maybe, yeah, to make it stand out, because Apple historically has been known for making colorful computers ever since the original iMac came out. Apple's kind of been... Uh, had a an off and on relationship, I guess, with colors. It it sort of transitioned. It seems like to the iPhone more than anything else. Apple hasn't really done as much with colorful Macs in recent years until now. The new iMac's basically an iPad, a big, big iPad. Pro Plus on a stand. It's a little thicker than an iPad. I'll put a link in the show notes to an iFixit teardown. iFixit is this company that does these videos and walkthroughs of how to take Macs and other devices apart and and repair them. And you can see there's not much in it. Pretty much the whole computer is in the bottom part. The rest is a display. It really is just an iPad on a stand. It looks like it from the side, just thicker. And I guess if it was the thickness of an iPad, it might almost be bendable. Yeah, that's that is one of the selling points. Of course, they talk about how this is, um, you know, the thinnest iMac ever, which is really actually quite impressive because, you know, l- looking at all the previous generations, I, I don't even feel like some of the semi-recent iMacs were that bulky or anything like that. But just the way that they've redesigned this, of course, they were able to go a lot thinner. We've come a long way since the days of the original iMac with the cathode ray tube, you know, the big giant monitor that also happens to have a computer built into it. We're we're in a completely different era, clearly now. We probably can't get a lot thinner. I mean, there'll be some improvements in display technology, But you still need enough room to maintain the rigidity of it. Not that someone's going to put it in their pocket, but still, you you don't want it to fall on the floor and bend if you knock it over. But 
in the end, it doesn't really matter if it's thin because, yes, it takes up less space on your desk than an iMac with a CRT, but I'm looking at the front. I don't see how thin it is. Yeah, well, okay, that's that's a fair point. I guess it's really only if you're looking at it from the side that you notice. But at the same time, I, I think that it looks like from your pictures and your article, it looks like the depth of it is a little bit more shallow than it used to be. So you could probably... F- fit it back in in a space without um, having to take as much space on your desk, right? Yeah, because the stand is a lot straighter. The stand of Mm. the previous model was, I guess it's like I'm trying to think, not quite a 45-degree angle, and then it comes forward. And this one's a much slimmer angle. So you could save a little bit of space. But again, if you're using this on a desk, you're going to have enough space. It's not that much of a problem. This is functionally exactly the same as the other M1 Max. What's inside is the same processor, the same GPU, the same cores. Everything's the same. The only real difference is that you have four ports on this. On both of the laptops, you only have two ports, the MacBook Air and the MacBook Pro. So here you have two Thunderbolt and two USB 4 ports, which is similar to the Mac Mini. But other than that, it's the same computer. So you're paying for, out of these four different computer models, you're paying for the form factor more than anything else. Yeah, the one thing that was maybe a a little bit of a surprise, I think, to some people was that Apple decided to release these iMacs with the same M1 processor. The M1 has been out for a little bit of time now, and so I think that some people were kind of expecting there to be uh, more of a, of a a revision of this M1 processor by now. But, um, you know, maybe they're saving that for a new iMac Pro model or something like that. Well, I think what Apple has done now is they've shown us what they consider to be the entry-level Macs. The MacBook Air, the 13-inch MacBook Pro, the Mac Mini, and the 24-inch iMac. So those are the entry-level. The next series that's going to get the M2 or whatever it is, is the 15 or 16-inch MacBook Pro and the 27 or 30-inch iMac. We don't know exactly how big it's going to be. So the... This replaces a 21.5-inch iMac. It's actually a 23.5-inch diagonal, yet they call it 24-inch. I don't know why, since they called the previous one 21.5, they don't call this 23.5. But it takes up the same amount of space within a, the, an inch in height and width as the 21.5. So the 27 would be able to become 30 inches with the same size bezels. So I'm thinking these four models are entry-level. The next two are going to be sort of higher level, but then we're still going to have the Pro level at some point. I don't think we're going to see another iMac Pro, but we're going to definitely see a Mac Pro, which an M3 or multiple M3 chips, maybe a quantum processor. No, (laughs) too soon for that. Too soon for quantum. But yeah, yeah, um, it would be very interesting to see Apple release a Mac Pro that had multiple processors. You know, it wouldn't necessarily have to be some bleeding edge, you know, M3 or whatever. It, as long as they put, um, you know, more than one M1 or M2 processor together and, and get the additional capacity of having extra processing cores, um, I, I think that that could, I mean, already the M1 is an extremely powerful processor. You know, we, we've seen benchmarks that indicate that it's way, way better than anything that Intel is doing right now. That's super impressive already by itself. So when you're pairing multiple M1 processors together, uh, you've got a really powerful supercomputer. So, One limitation to the M1 processor is it can only have up to 16 gigabytes of RAM. 
Now, when I bought a MacBook Air, I'll link in the show notes to an article about my first week with the MacBook Air last year. I went for the cheapest one with eight gigabytes. I just, from what I'd read, I didn't think I needed to spend the extra 200 pounds or $200 for more RAM. For this one, since it's more of a long-term computer, I went for the 16 gigs. I haven't noticed a difference yet. I don't think I'd really do the kind of thing with that many apps and big files that need the difference. But if you do work with, I mean, the example is video, 4K video. And if you're doing 4K video editing, you're going to want more RAM than that. So that's what the next M processor is going to allow. Yeah, that's true. That's probably a big point that uh, that Apple is uh, waiting to release the pro models until they can support more RAM than 16 gigs. Uh, for Certainly for most everyday users, eight gigs with an M1 is is enough, actually. You know, Apple's been still selling Macs with eight gigs of RAM as an option for quite a long time. Even with Intel processors, Apple felt like eight gigs was sufficient because of uh, certain things that they're doing for, you know, optimizing the efficiency of RAM usage in Mac OS. And uh, of course, now they're doing the same thing with uh, with iOS and, and Mac OS using these M1 processors. Of course, you've got the new iPad Pro as well, which is also using an M1 processor, interestingly. That's right. So I got an 11-inch iPad Pro because my iPad Pro was about two and a half years old. So it's two generations back. It is exactly the same form factor as the iPad Pro has been for several years now. Um, going back to the very first models, it hasn't changed. I don't need the 12.9-inch, and the 12.9-inch has the display that Apple calls the XDR Liquid Retina. And I've seen a, a number of reviews and comparisons of that to the previous 12.9. And when you're looking at something with black on the display, it really is black. And you know how on any other device, black is always a kind of gray. You can see the light coming in a little bit. So they've made a real improvement with that. But even the 11-inch display is a lot better than previously. Yeah, well, I think one of the most interesting features of this new iPad Pro is, what are they calling it? Center stage. Center stage, uh, yeah. <laughs> this uh, sort of face tracking feature. And you've got a, a, a fun little demo video of this embedded in your article there. Yeah, so together with our producer, Doug Adams, we made a FaceTime call yesterday, and he recorded the screen of me as I was walking around my office and pointing at things and going blah, blah, blah. I wasn't really saying anything. And I pick up a plant and show it to him. And it's it's almost eerie the way the camera follows you around. It, it seems so natural. It seems like, uh, I think Doug called it like you've got your own personal steady cam. Yeah. Well, that, that's one of the funny things about this is that it seems like something that you should have been able to do for a long time. And yet we haven't ever been able to do this in a standalone device that doesn't have some sort of funky, I don't know, tracking thing that like sort of pans back and forth. You don't see any panning, obviously, because you've got your iPad Pro just stationary there on your desk. Yeah. And that's what's kind of a little bit eerie about it, I think, is is that you're not seeing anything moving and yet it's following you around the room. Yeah. Well, th so the way it works is it's got a LiDAR scanner, which is what it uses for Face ID, and that's able to, to recognize where the face is, and it also recognizes depth. So you'll notice in the video, it kind of zooms in and zooms out a little bit a couple of times. And we did a thing where I held up a small painting of a face, and it didn't really figure it out because there was no depth in it, so it wasn't following just as well. So it, it's very clever. I don't know why this isn't in the iMac, because you're not always sitting still in front of the iMac. You might want to get up and walk around when you're doing a Zoom thing. 
That's true. Do the new IMAX have LiDAR in them? No, they don't. They don't have Face ID. See, LiDAR is ah. is part of what powers Face ID, to be able to tell the depth of your face as opposed to just a photograph of your face. So the iMac doesn't have that. But, of course, the iMac now has Touch ID on a keyboard. That's optional. The cheapest model doesn't come with the Touch ID keyboard, but the other two do. And that's just wonderful to have, finally. Yeah, well, and, and this brings up an interesting point. Why isn't there Face ID on an iMac? Because, I mean... You know, they they put a 1080p front-facing camera, and, and, you know, like the iMac is not really that different in thinness from an iPhone. Why couldn't you just add the LiDAR and other technologies that you would need to get Face ID working on an iMac? That seems kind of odd. I wonder if the fact that it's a fixed device that you don't want it necessarily waking up every time you sit down in front of it. You get the option with Touch ID. So if I sit down in front and I touch a key or I touch the mouse or trackpad, it's going to say, you know, it's going to want to be woken up. But maybe Face ID for something like that would wake up too often. Hmm. Maybe. Another thing that I've done is previously I used my Apple Watch to unlock my iMac, and now I've turned that off. Oh. Because... Every once in a while, since my bedroom is just up above my home office, sometimes I'd come down in the morning and my iMac would be awake. And it could be some kind of vibration of a car outside or a cat on the desk that shakes it enough. And since I'm close enough on the floor above, it's woken up. So I've turned that off now for extra security. So now I just use the Touch ID, which, you know, Touch ID is really quick. Hmm. I would like to see Face ID on an iMac, though. I think that would just be cool. Uh, and I, I, there's nothing wrong with Touch ID. I think it's actually pretty cool that they built that into the keyboard now. But yeah, I feel like Face ID m- makes sense. Well, here's an example. Here's an example. When you go to pay something with Apple Pay, you've got to hold your iPhone or iPad so it can see your face, but you have to press a button twice. What button would you press to confirm the purchase on an iMac since Face ID is seeing you automatically? You still have to do something. Mm-hmm. Would you have to click a button on screen? Would it be the power button or something? Because you you can't have Face ID trigger a purchase without you confirming it. Of right? course. Yeah. Maybe well, that's one of the reasons why they haven't done it. Well, maybe. But I mean, they, they kind of already worked that out on the iPhone at the same time. So I in, in that case, on the iPhone, you double tap on the power button uh, to confirm the purchase uh, for Face ID. You know, it, it doesn't matter what key on, on your keyboard, but I imagine you would probably double tap a, a, a key on, on your keyboard, maybe, uh, if if they were to implement Face ID on an iMac. So it's not, I, I don't, I don't know if that's the reason why, because it seems to me that you could pretty much do the same thing. You could simulate it um, with any key press on an, on an iMac to, to confirm a purchase, for example. But, hmm, yeah, why isn't Apple doing it? Well... Well, maybe we'll see that in the forthcoming 30-inch, 27-inch iMac and the 16-inch whatever MacBook Pro. Perhaps. And for our listeners, if you have any other theories about why it is that Apple hasn't put Face ID into the new iMacs, drop us an email at podcast at intigo.com. Okay, don't forget that in about 10 days, we're going to have the next WWDC, and we should be hearing about some new stuff then, too. Yeah, that'll be fun. Um, we'll definitely have some some coverage of it. Um, obviously, we're going to find out about the new operating systems, and we don't know a whole lot else, so we'll learn together. Okay, until next week, Josh, stay secure. All right, stay secure. 
Thanks for listening to the Intego Mac Podcast, the voice of Mac security, with your hosts, Kirk McElhern and Josh Long. To get every weekly episode, be sure to follow us in Apple Podcasts or subscribe in your favorite podcast app. And if you can, leave a rating, a like, or a review. Links to topics and information mentioned in the podcast can be found in the show notes for the episode at podcast.intego.com. The Intego website is also where to find details on the full line of Intego security and utility software, intego.com. <laughs>